Well, I don't need to tell you the media has made sure of that. That it's been another brutal week in America. In the world, really. And there's no escaping it. Whether it's large-scale tragedies and crimes like the ones committed in Las Vegas a week ago that'll be remembered for a hundred years, or the smaller everyday tragedies that made some of you wonder perhaps if you even wanted to come to church. You were hurting in the middle of all that. There's just a never-ending stream of trouble that occurs all around us and in many of our cases occurs in us. A little word about that before we pick up Jesus' story in the Gospel of Luke. I'm trying to have less to do with social media and unsuccessfully sometimes because some really smart people were designed it to be addictive. I don't know if you've noticed. But I read some good counsel and good enough that I knew it would be read on Facebook. A man who dedicated his life to fighting the worst kinds of things that people can do to each other and saw a lot of horrible things in his long career gave this good advice. He said, don't traumatize yourself unnecessarily. Life's hard enough. Enough sorrow, enough trouble will come into your life unbidden without you exposing yourself to things that don't really have anything to do with you. And the 24-7 news cycle and the news machine that has to be fed, and a, a communication professor told me years ago, the credo of the newsroom is, if it bleeds, it leads. If anybody's hurting, if anybody's crying, if there's blood, that's what we're going to lead with because that gets eyes, that gets ears, that gets clicks on the internet. And the net effect of that is you traumatize yourself unnecessarily because there literally are, there are things that you can't get out of your mind and things that you see and hear because now through the magic of smartphones, you don't have to be there to witness terrible things. And he said, don't traumatize yourself unless you have to. In Luke chapter 7, which is where we're picking up Jesus' gospel, it's one of those days that came into the life of Jesus, unexpected and unbidden by everyone in the crowd. I want you to see how he dealt with it. Luke chapter 7, verse 11, if you didn't bring a Bible with you, there should be one near you so we can read together. If you don't have a Bible at home, please take that one home with you. We've been moving through the Gospel of Luke for most of the year. We've taken breaks for strategic reasons. We'll take one again next week. I sincerely would like to hear your questions. I've had several already. If you have a question about the kinds of things that we're forced to think about because of Las Vegas, please let me know. Luke chapter 7, Jesus is headed into a town you can still find today. A little town of Nain sits perched on a slope. It's a beautiful view. You can look at it later with Google. Please don't do it now. And Jesus has been teaching in Luke chapter 6 what is normally called the Sermon on the Mount. He's been spelling out the terms of discipleship. He's been saying what the people who actually follow Him, listen to Him, obey Him, are actually going to be like. 
They are to be those, he says, for instance, who love their enemies. They are those who are going to be gracious both in their attitudes and their actions. He warns in Luke chapter 6 that everyone who's listening should pick their teacher very carefully because whoever we give influence in our lives, whoever we make our teacher, we are actually going to become the kind of person they are. And then Jesus closes with His very famous warning, which He says there's two kinds of people in any crowd anytime Jesus is speaking. There are those who listen to His Word and build their life on it. They listen to Him and they do what He says. And Jesus says that person is like someone who builds their house on a rock, on a solid foundation. And when the storm comes, the house is unshaken. It stands fast because it was well built. But, Jesus says, there's another kind of person in the crowd. They listen to Jesus, but they don't put into practice what He says. They pay no mind. They don't obey. Those kind of people, Jesus says, are like a foolish man who builds his house flat on the ground with no foundation at all. It's easier in the moment, but when the storm comes against that life, Its ruin is total and complete. So Jesus says to us through that story, be careful how you listen to me because you're making decisions for life because we're all building in the face of a storm. In Luke chapter 7, he leaves the scene of that teaching with a great crowd of people following him. And he receives two delegations from a Roman soldier who has, the delegations tell him, a servant who is homesick. And the Roman soldier humbly says, I don't deserve to meet you or to have you come into my house. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. And Jesus performs an extraordinary miracle. He simply wills it. And when those people go home and the Roman centurion's friends return to him, They find the servant healed. No wonder then in Luke chapter 7, verse 11, we're told this, soon afterward he went into a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. Of course a great crowd went with him. If someone is available who can do these sorts of things, who can teach with authority that no scholar in the synagogue has ever mastered, who can do things like be interrupted by demon-possessed men and quiet them down and cast them out and heal the man, who can command disease at will from a distance and have it all done immediately. Of course, a great crowd is following Jesus. And then the unexpected sorrow meets Jesus in the crowd face to face. Verse 12, as he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, A man who had died was being carried out. Maybe you've had that, the modern experience of what that crowd went through. Maybe you've been driving and you're in a bit of a hurry and you're texting and talking on your phone and you probably shouldn't be doing any of that, but you're doing it anyway because modern life is so busy. And then you meet a long procession of slow-moving cars with their headlights on. And you snap out of it, and you realize this is a funeral procession. All but the worst kind of people, seeing a line of cars with their headlights on and a hearse leading them all, 
will stop and wait. Maybe look respectfully at the people in those cars. That's what's happening here. This is the first century equivalent. This little town, this population is going to double or triple because the crowd is going to follow Jesus wherever He goes. But on the way in at the city gate, a man is being carried out, dead. And Luke gives two heartbreaking details. It says, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. The only son of his mother. In other words, this woman is a bit of a, a bit of an anomaly in her world. You see, in the ancient world, what you depended upon your whole life was your family. Families were large for all kinds of reasons, including the fact that you needed someone to work for the family. And absent all the things that we take for granted with all the structures we've built to support people in every season of life, your children were your security and your provision and your physical safety in your old age. For whatever reason, this woman has only had one son. And she's already had a heartbreaking loss. Her husband, we're not told of him, but he's died earlier. And it was just the two of them in this little house. And then something happened to this man, and now she, the widow, has lost her only son. And that's why Luke says a considerable crowd from the town was with her. In the custom of the day, the entire community would have turned out. She's being forced to ask herself questions that come whether you want them or not, at a time like that, at a funeral. Her chief emotion, I'm sure, is fear. What happens to me now? Who's going to look after me? How am I going to stay safe? How am I going to eat? The crowd is going along with her, certainly some out of social custom. Her loved ones and her friends may be asking themselves the same kind of related questions. What should we do for her? She has no other family. She's on her own now. Should we start bringing food by? Should I stop by and make sure that the house is in good repair every once in a while? This great crowd is walking along asking those same kinds of questions when they meet Jesus. When the Lord saw her, He had compassion on her and said to her, Do not Now, if you can remind yourself that this is an actual story that Luke, who was not an eyewitness of these events, is friends to people who were, and with the, caref with the careful work of the journalist or the historian, he goes around and interviews people and has personal conversations who tell them what they saw and what they learned from Jesus, if you can remind yourself that this is an actual death. And a man, as you're going to see in the next few words, lies dead on a burial plank, his dead body exposed for all to see, because those are the burial customs of the day. There are no closed coffins. They carry their dead out on a beer, a burial plank. Maybe you've seen scenes like that on your newsfeed from the Middle East. It makes death raw, visible, painful. And that's what Jesus sees, and it fills him with compassion. And he says something that I've heard people say in hospital wards and living rooms in the first few minutes of realizing that a loved one is dead. It's cruel if anybody but Jesus says it. 
Because Jesus says, don't cry. Well, how could she not? Maybe you've said something like that to a heartbroken person and immediately wanted to chase your words down and stuff them back in and leave quietly. Jesus says to her, do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier. That's the strange word for this burial plank, this open frame where they're carrying the dead men. He came up and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. And there's a good reason for that. According to the Hebrew Scriptures, it's in the front part of your Bible, God had given His law to Israel from the very beginnings of the nation. And we read those things today, and so much of it, once you get past the moral law, for instance, of the Ten Commandments, once you get down to their ceremonial law, it seems so strange. Because God has involved Himself and told them in detail everything about their lives, what kind of clothes they're supposed to wear, what kind of food they're supposed to eat, and a lot of regulations having to do with the dead. And regarding the dead, there was one simple rule, don't touch. It's a necessity of life, but it's an ugly one. And all of those ceremonial laws had one single point. God wanted to reinforce to His people in their everyday life so that they had to be reminded of it as they went through an ordinary day that He was holy. In other words, He was separate. He was in a category all of His own. He was righteous and pure and perfect and holy. So, even though somebody sometimes has to come in contact with the dead, the law said, when you do... You're ceremonially unclean for a short time. Meaning, for that time, you don't bring an offering to God. You don't go to worship. You're separate. You're on your own for a short time to remind yourself that God, the God of life and holiness and righteousness, is distant, is separate. And now Jesus does something that no one would willingly do, especially a teacher like Jesus. Because Luke's already told you, Jesus is the kind of man who goes to the synagogue on every Sabbath and every time he is allowed to speak, he opens up the prophets and the Psalms and all the Scriptures and teaches them with such authority that even if he works no miracle, it makes people wonder what sort of man is this made the people in his hometown ask questions like, isn't this the carpenter's kid? How'd he ever learn to teach like that? Such a man would be holy himself. He would be scrupulous about the ceremonial law. Jesus on this day walks right up, touches the burial plank, the bearers, I'm sure, in surprise, stand still, and he said, young man, I say to you, arise. Again, this is perfectly absurd. This is the sort of thing that adds grief, that diverts attention from the tragedy that has already engulfed this family, unless it's Jesus, because what happens next, verse 15, it says, the dead man sat up and began to speak. And I wonder what he said. I wonder if he picked up his last words right where he left them, right where death interrupted him. I wonder if he went on trying to tell his mother that he loved her, or try to give her some comfort, or try to tell her that he was actually going to get better, 
Whatever it was, he sat straight up, he began to speak and watch this little detail, and Jesus gave him to his mother. I love that. I don't know exactly what that looks like, but I expect that Jesus, under the shock of everyone else, helps the man get down off this open frame, helps him realize he's back from the dead. His legs actually hold him and then brings him back to his mother and brings the two of them together. What must that have looked like? What's going through her mind? How many friends had to rush over and help hold her up? Because this isn't the sort of thing that happens. You're aware of that, right? Here's the most extraordinary thing about Jesus, and you can read the Gospels and find this for yourself. In his ministry, Jesus never met a funeral procession, never was in the presence of a dead person without immediately removing the center of attention by giving that person their life back. Why? Because he's telling us who he is. He's telling us what he can do. Here's the natural reaction from the crowd. It says, fear sees them all, of course. We can read this with the familiarity of someone who's heard these stories before and has come to expect this from Jesus, but Jesus is an ordinary human being walking among us. The Word of God, the eternal God, actually became flesh, walked among us. There was nothing extraordinary about Him physically except He preaches, He teaches, He listens, He loves, and He does things like this. So fear sees them all, and they glorified God, saying, a great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited His people. They couldn't have helped being reminded of what their Scriptures told them. Centuries earlier, there were two great prophets in Israel, one named Elijah, another named Elisha. They also had given a dead son back to a mother. They made the connection and they said, someone is here to speak for God again. That's what a prophet does. He brings God's message to people. Truly, this is no ordinary person. God has visited His people again. And of course, verse 17, this report about Him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. What's the point? Of all the things that Luke learned, why did he tell us this? So that you will know this, there is no heartache that Jesus cannot heal. This is who Jesus is. Whether it's demons or disease or the worst enemy that leaves us all shaken, that makes us all fear phone calls in the middle of the night, whatever that heartache is, whatever is common to our frail human condition, there is no heartache that Jesus cannot heal. Again, this message could not possibly have been timed at this week's events. And the big stories that everybody's heard and the countless smaller stories of the little tragedies and the little Sorrows that visit individuals' homes that don't make the news. But here's what you need to know about Jesus. He is God on earth, and He is the one who can heal every hurt and every heartache. And that's why we're given the end of the book. That's why we're given the end of the Bible, so that we'll know how this all turns out. Look at the next to last chapter in the Bible. It's a big book, the book you're holding. It has 1,189 chapters. This is almost the last. We'll read it together, in fact. Revelation 21, if you look up at the screen, Revelation 21 tells you future history. 
See, the Bible is prophetic in its last book. It tells you of things that are still yet to come, but they're just as certain as last year's news. There's no doubt that they're going to happen. God is speaking about how He is going to end history, how He's going to consummate it, and here's the promise and the picture that we're given to give us hope. Read this with me, Revelation 21. It says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be His people. And God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Don't you yearn for that? See, a lot of what I've heard this week is, I wish things were like they used to be. But if you think carefully, they weren't great back then. They may be worse now, but sorrow, death, trouble, family separation, broken relationships, death, divorce, wayward children, cruel parents, the world has always been populated with these kinds of troubles. That's why it says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be their more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things, all of them. They've all passed away, and He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. That's why Jesus was on earth, to bring this into the world, to begin to make all all things new. So whatever heartache you brought into church with you, and there's many, and maybe you weren't one of the several survivors that attended our church this week who were shaken themselves, largely uninjured, but some very badly shaken by what they saw, some literally bloodied by their, thank God, successful attempts to rescue other people. Maybe that's not your situation, but you walk around with heartache too. This is the work of God. This is what He can do. That's why Jesus involves Himself and actually invests Himself personally in human form in the world to deal with all kinds of trouble and all kinds of need that come crashing into people's lives so that we would know this simple truth. There is no heartache that Jesus cannot heal. What you need to do is give it to Him and trust Him. When will it all be over? I don't know. I hope before the end of this service. That would be great if He would actually make all things new before I could finish this sermon. But this is who He is, this is what He's doing. And in the middle of all this sorrow and the heartbreak that He Himself feels for the world, you need to know He is the one who can heal every hurt and every heartache. So, as Christians, 
as Jesus' disciples, because that's what this church is about. That's what Jesus told us to do, to make disciples, to make people who resembled Him, who were, took Him as teacher and became gradually, with a lot of stops and starts and a lot of ups and downs and a lot of moments where we say, actually, I blew it, and I reminded absolutely no one of Jesus last Wednesday, but I'm on my way. He saved me. He's my boss. He's my teacher. I'm His disciple, His apprentice. What kind of people should we be? As we go into this broken, messed up world, what is it that we need to do? Well, the first thing I think we need to do is this, Crosspoint. We need to adjust to His timetable because suffering doesn't keep a schedule. Jesus is a human being now. He is God who became a man. It's always hard to know exactly how to talk about moments like these. Because Jesus has the mind, the faculty, He is God Himself, but He's also taken that deity and put it into human form. All the fullness of who God is dwells now in Jesus Christ personally, bodily. So in a story like this where it seems that Jesus is interrupted, it's hard to know what to make of it. Depends on whether you're considering His deity or His humanity, but the way Luke tells the story, Jesus is just going into the village of Nain. He's on His way somewhere else to do something else, and He's met with this crowd. And sometimes as followers of Jesus who can't see past the next five minutes, Sometimes suffering comes crashing into our lives because people who we love are hurt. What do we do then? If you're really a disciple, you need to adjust to His timetable because suffering doesn't announce itself. Suffering is never said a day in anyone's life. Could you look at your calendar? I have some really bad things I'm going to do to you over the next three weeks. And I was just, I was hoping to make it more convenient for you. Unemployment, bad news, the loss of a friendship, the loss of a marriage, serious illness, death, mistreatment at the hands of other people. I'm going to bring some of that into your life. Does uh, next Tuesday work for you? Suffering doesn't work like that. It comes sometimes with no apparent reason. And what Jesus does is He adjusts. The crowd is behind him. They want to hear more teaching. Jesus puts his focus on the one person in the crowd who needs it most. There is a widow who has lost her only son. He does the religiously unthinkable, touches the dead, says to the woman, don't cry, and then gives her a reason to stop crying by giving her son back to her alive and even talking. Now, you and I were not deity. We just follow God. But if you're going to faithfully follow Him into the world, God will direct your path to cross with the lives of other people who are in all kinds of pain and all kinds of trouble. And if you're going to do what Jesus wants in that situation, you can't cling to your schedule. You have to set your plans aside at that moment and do what Jesus did next. You also, we also must share His compassion because weariness with this world does no one any good. And that's probably the greatest risk that I see for most Christians now. See, in the caring professions like nursing 
All first responders go through this as well. People who counsel and give therapy for a living suffer with it greatly as well. In the caring professions, there's this little phrase in the literature called compassion fatigue. And that means is because you deal with heartbreaking situations all the time, every time they call you or somebody comes to see you, they're always in trouble or they wouldn't be talking to you in the first place. After a while, even though it's the most natural and human thing to care, you're, you're out of compassion. You can't care anymore. Now, bear with me a moment of explanation of a word. The New Testament, what we've been reading, was written originally in Greek. Luke put it down in Greek. But our English word, compassion, we drew that not from Greek, but from Latin. And the origin of the Latin word teaches us a lot of what Jesus was going through when he first saw this woman. The Greek rather the Latin word that gives us the English word compassion means to suffer with. So if you have compassion for someone, you suffer with them. That's so much better than pity. It's so much better than sympathy. Compassion calls for much more. It calls for what Jesus did here. He entered into that woman's experience. He saw what was going on and in a moment took her hurt, her suffering, her fear, her questions into his heart, and that's what we have to do because if we grow weary of compassion and love, we'll do no one any good at all. And that's one reason, in my personal opinion, and it's a very specific and practical opinion, a lot of you would do a lot of good to yourselves, your families, your friends, and frankly to Jesus if you disconnected yourself from the constant stream of suffering. You need some margin and some reserve so that you can be compassionate and loving when it actually comes close to your life and you're actually in a position to care. The headlines will do. You can know in 30 seconds of scanning the headlines what Las Vegas needs. You can read of civil unrest that is tearing Spain apart as Catalonia pulls back and wants its independence. You can imagine what that might do. You don't need to go deep into those news stories. That alone can prompt you to pray. And in your personal world with people hurting all around you, if you'll keep a little margin and you'll do what another part of Scripture says and refuse to be weary in well-doing, Trusting that in a good time in due season, you're going to bring in a good harvest so long as you don't quit in weariness and compassion, that's when you can do someone some good. Look at Romans 12, 15. You're going to learn a Bible verse this morning. I promise you by heart, even if you don't particularly want to. Ready? <laughs> Romans 12, verse 15. Read this with me. It says, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. That's simple, isn't it? This is the kind of people that Christians are to be. This is what we are to do on an ordinary day when we encounter suffering and joy. We rejoice with those who rejoice. And if we meet someone weeping, what do we do with them? We're to weep. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep all too many times. People who represent Jesus, who are part of the body of Christ, in other words, who represent the work of Jesus who are His actual practical hands and feet in this world will enter into heartbreaking situations, and rather than listen and cry with people, 
We'll start in with analysis of why this all happened. Well, you know, I could have told you this. Well, you're going to be in the hospital next, buddy, if you keep up with insensitive things like that. No, we rejoice with those who rejoice. We weep with those who weep. This wise man who said, don't traumatize yourself if you don't have to. He has another famous saying. I don't know if he took it from Scripture. I expect that he did because it's such a biblical, true, beautiful idea. He said this, joy shared is multiplied. Grief shared is divided. See, when you have good news, when joy has arrived in your life, when you have cause to be happy, you can't help but tell people. Speaking of social media, that goes out first, right? Nothing good has happened until it's Facebook or Instagram or Snapchat official. It gets out there. You tell people your good news and the congratulations and the little hearts come pouring in and you're so happy and the more people rejoice with you, the happier you feel. That's how joy works. That's why people go to football games. It's much better at, the, much better at your house, but how else could you high-five a complete stranger and jump for joy with people you've never met and you'll never see again? Why do we do that? Because joy shared is multiplied. But grief shared, pain shared, that gets divided among the people who care. If you'll come close enough to give an ear, to give a shoulder and put your shoulder under that burden, that grief will be divided among the people who are present. And that's what Jesus is doing. That brings me to the final thought that I see in Jesus. What else are we to do? Church, we have to get close enough to make a difference because that's where love works best. I recently talked to someone, yet another person. I've been meeting a lot of them and seeking a couple of them out. I talked to someone who's been a, a chaplain to some of the best fighting men in the world. And I said, when it's really ugly, What's most important? What would you tell me as a pastor in those moments? He said, you just have to be there. Just be present. Well, here's the good news of the gospel. Jesus is present. John said, John, the fisherman who was called away from the net, said, the Word became flesh and He dwelt among us and we saw His glory. Later, he writes a letter and says, we saw him, we heard him, we touched him. He was here. He was with us. And his final words were this, I will be with you always, all the way to the end of the age. And when he meets the widow who's lost her only son coming out of this town of no particular importance, he doesn't move around. He doesn't say, I had something else in mind. I have more pressing business. He actually stops the procession by doing something unthinkable, by touching the dead, shocking the bearers, bringing the woman up short, and immediately he heals the source and the heart of her pain by giving the son back to the mother. You and I don't have those faculties. He didn't delegate that to his followers, but what we can do is run to the grief. We can sit with the grieving. We can listen. We can love. 
We can hug. We can send notes. We can bring food. We can answer hard questions or simply tell people the honest truth about things sometimes that come crashing into our lives. I don't know, but I love you. And I know that God is good enough that He hurts with you. And He can heal this hurt. He can restore this life. He can make all of this, even this, new. Because, church, there is no heartache that Jesus cannot heal. I wonder what kind of pain did you bring into church with you today? Is it a big, heavy, sorrowful thing that you never talk about? You can give that to Jesus. Almost everybody I talk to, I mean literally almost everybody is at least mildly disappointed by what life actually is and what they imagined it would be. A lot of people I talk to just have kind of a generalized anxiety. They're just anxious and they're not sure why. Big or small, you can give it to Jesus. He has time enough for a widow who probably didn't know his name until he gave her this great gift back. Until her son climbed down off the burial plank and did something she could never imagine and something she was already yearning for, hugged his mother again. He really, truly will dry every tear. He really will make all things new. In the meantime, you can give your heartache to Him. And if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, and here's really the heart of my concern when I get up behind this pulpit week after week, it's that some of you will be admirers of Jesus. You'll be fans. You'll enjoy the stories of His life, but you'll never actually trust Him as Savior. You'll never come to an end of yourself, and you'll listen to me preach weekend after weekend. And listen, I I love it. I enjoy it. But at the end of your life, if you don't trust Jesus, I'm not talking to you, by the way, about adopting religion or getting a new set of rules or trying a little bit harder. I'm talking to you about the opposite of that, actually. I'm talking to you about the moment in your life where you say, Jesus, I cannot save myself. My conscience tells me so. My history tells me so. This deep longing that I have for something that is better and greater, that can make me and make things in me new, I can't find it. I'm turning to you. I'm trusting you. I'm sorry for my sin. That moment has come for most of us, but for some of you who may be coming for a few weeks or maybe for years, but you've never actually humbled yourself to the point where you say, Jesus, here's my sin. Make me, your servant. Here, take my sin. Be my Savior instead. That's the point of this whole Bible. It all points to that moment, to that encounter. So if you're already following Jesus, give Him your heartache. And then ask Him to renew your compassion, to renew your strength, to make Him, make you at your level, at your limit, be the kind of person He was that would take his compassion out into the world so that when people meet you, they're reminded of Jesus who can heal every heart. Can we take a moment and pray to him about it? Let me ask you first, have you had that defining encounter with Jesus where you have asked him personally, yourself, I mean, to be your Savior? If not, that's my specific invitation to you.
I've told you a lot of the things he said and did today. Here's one more to give you a little encouragement if you're wavering. Jesus said, if anyone comes to me, I will by no means cast him out. Promise. Jesus said, if anyone comes to trust me, I've never turned anyone away. Not once. Jesus never met a funeral that he didn't stop by bringing the dead back to life. And in his life, he will never turn anyone away that comes to him for forgiveness and salvation. Not once. Never has happened, never will. You could be next to say to Jesus, please, Lord, I'm giving up on myself. I'm asking you, please save me. That'll multiply joy in heaven. God himself will rejoice to welcome you as son or daughter. And Christian, if you're already following Jesus, could you take a moment and give him your heartaches and your hurts? Maybe you've never been loved well. If so, that that fills the heart of your Savior with compassion. He loves you perfectly. Give him your hurts and find out. They'll come back, and in that moment, you should give them to back to him again and again and again until it becomes habitual. And your grief is, spends much less time in your hands than it does in His. And as a church, we really should be asking ourselves, how do we get close to all this mess? How do we get close enough for that love, so that love can make a difference? For those of you who don't know Jesus as Savior, would you ask Him in prayer right now to save you? If you know that He has but you came in with a heavy heart, would you give it to him? And let's ask him together, Lord, what do you, we're, you've put us in a broken, messed up world. Our phones are blowing up with bad news. We can't do all of it. We can't do much. But what is it that you want us to do in our little world to make your mercy and your grace apparent for these crying people? Lord, I pray most for those who are turning to you as Savior right now. Give them courage, confidence, humility, openness, Lord, to you. To say to you right now, Jesus, I'm a sinner, but you're a Savior. Forgive my sin. Give me new life. I'm taking you on as boss, as Lord of my life. Be my teacher. Walk me through this life. Take me home to heaven with you someday. And Lord, for the many disciples that have gathered in this, in this campus across three services, help us now to give you our heart and its hurts. Heal it. Do your good work as only you can. I can only tell them about it. I can't do much at all, Lord. To heal those hurts besides listen and care and try to point people back to you. But you can do anything and everything. You do all things well. So I pray that you would. And that in the coming days, Lord, as we give more and more, as you give us more and more capacity and vision, that we would go close to the world so that this sin-messed world would know that we care and that we, they can experience your love in some way through the likes of us. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.